Okay. Uh, good morning, everyone. You're all really welcome. It's nice to see lots of new people around this morning. If this is your first time at Central today, you are especially welcome. Helen is kind of the hostess with the most deaths, so she's already done a spectacular job of welcoming you all, but it's lovely to see you all. If you haven't been here, okay, the news is that basically for a year, we walked through the Book of Acts, and then I promised people that we were done with the Book of Acts, and then last week, dug into the book of Acts again, and I'm going to follow that up this week by going one step even further, which is reading part of last week's reading from the book of Acts all over again, okay, right? I promise we're not going to be here like in perpetuity. At some point next week, we're not going to be in Acts anymore, okay? But we're reading today from Acts 2, all right? We're in Acts 2, we're in verses 1 to 13. By now, I expect that some of you could like read that off from memory for me. I'm not going to put you on the spot. Uh, I would dearly love to, but I'm, uh, I'm not going to do that today. Acts 2, verses 1 to 13. We're reading from that account again from the day of Pentecost, okay? And this is God's word. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How then is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us today. And so we're back in Acts because we're into the second week of this little short series that we're running after Pentecost. If you know anything about kind of the, the kind of church calendar or the order of festivals in inverted commas as they come in the church year, Pentecost was just a few weeks ago. Pentecost where we celebrate what we just read, that coming of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church. And like we said last week, the problem with that so often is that like you hear that stuff and partly because it happens in Acts 2, you hear it and you read it, but part of you doesn't really know what to do with that information, right? It's why Pentecost actually, in my experience, spending a lifetime in the church, okay, Pentecost is often the festival that we find really hard to know how to celebrate, right? Because it's this one-time thing that happens, but it has ongoing implications right towards today. And so the aim of this series was to spend a couple of weeks digging into some of the things that the Bible says about the Holy Spirit as it comes to us, okay? Last week, it was gift of God. This week, fire of God. We're talking about the fire of God today. 
Lots of you uh, joined us at Nua over the Pentecost weekend. Thank you so much. It was an incredible time for us, 50 or 60 of us around church. Uh, and one of the kind of real gifts about that weekend was that it fell on the Pentecost weekend. So lots of people from different church backgrounds and experiences, different styles. Uh, and it was across everything, ministry, preaching, kind of everything. It was just very different. And it was wonderful, right? And lots of you joined us for that. And I was walking around on the Sunday morning. I bumped into some of you people from church, asked them how their weekend was going, how did you find Nua, okay? Of which one person said to me, you know what, Dave, I'm never, ever again going to say anything bad about you preaching to us for 40 minutes on a Sunday, right? I mean, I don't know if I should be offended by that. I don't know, like, what kind of information. I don't know if they were trying to say something nice, but I'm just like, have you been saying things about me? Because that's, like, that's what it sounds like, right? Backhanded compliment, whatever. Kind of offended, kind of compliment, right? One of those ones, right? But the most repeat form of comments across the weekend, the thing I heard again and again and again, the thing I felt myself was all around the Holy Spirit stuff. It was around ministry. It was around the operation of the prophetic. It was around all of the stuff that maybe some other churches that we were gathering around did some more of that stuff. They're maybe a bit further down the road, a bit more experience, a bit more openness. Maybe their style was such that they just kind of did that stuff a bit better than us as a church. And, and taking it in as we were kind of walking around over the course of the weekend, uh, it felt like it was, it was a lot of the feedback it was like, we need to push into that more as a church. We're seeing little bits of that, but we want more, and we want more, and we want more. And it feels like it's a significant time for us as a church right now, as we're experiencing lots of questions and longing, stuff being awakened, stuff that's maybe gone cold in some of your lives, stuff you used to do, stuff we used to do more as a church, hunger, longing, desire to see the Holy Spirit more at work in us and in us. And so it feels like a timely kind of moment to be spending a couple of weeks looking at what the Holy Spirit does when he comes. Something stirring. I felt kind of since early on in 2022 that Jesus was moving in us as a church to call us to prayer. I kind of felt that uh, as kind of we turned into 2022, just felt that there was something on our prayer life as a church, as individuals and corporately. So that's why we spent a weekend praying all weekend. We're trying to do some more as we think through next year. How would we position prayer much more right into the heart of who we are as a fellowship? And we want to do it in a greater way than we have before. And so post Pentecost, we've decided just to dig in a wee bit and try and speak into this moment by trying to give this fuller picture of the Holy Spirit. Part of the problem, however, is that certain things become synonymous with names, don't they? Like if I was to say, you know, uh, well, I was in and I was hoovering during the week, right? You know, that's not called a hoover. It's called a vacuum cleaner. But the first one was called a hoover. So now we all call it a hoover, right? Or ferry up liquid, right? It's washing up liquid. We can't even say that right, right? Ferry, just make it, right? But things become synonymous with names, don't they? So some of you, as you sit today and we talk about the Pentecost, all you can think about is Pentecostal, right? All you can think about that. You've got feelings about that too, right? Fire and brim stone, wildness, shouting, shaking, white suits, and even whiter teeth, right? All that sort of stuff. That's what you think about whenever we say Pentecost. And then we possibly have my least favorite emoji of them all, this one, right? 
It's not cool, right? It seems to be if I ever go and preach at anything related to like student ministry or young adults, afterwards some Instagram will be like Dave Dicko flames. I don't even know what that means, right? I, I'm just like, what is this, right? I, I just don't get it, right? That preach today was flame emoji. That worship today, oh, just flames. That flat white bro, flames. Like, I don't get it, right? Can we stop it? Can we? I know I've just said this, so I'm expecting like 25,000 Instagram posts after. To, Stephen Cairns is probably doing it already, right? That's how it works, right? Worst thing on social media, right? Well, then there's the songs, the songs that we sing as a church. I mean, it seems to me that one of the criteria for writing a big hit Christian worship song is to include flames, fires, something burning. Something has to be burning if it has to be a hit song, right? Don't believe me? They've all got them. Jesus Culture, Set a Fire. Hill Song, Another in the Fire. Tim Hughes, Consuming Fire. Pat Barrett, The Wick. Matt Redman, Fires, right? They've all got them. So if you're a budding Christian worship leader this morning and you you feel like you would like to have a hit song, just include something burning and you're probably well on your way. They're all at it. And the reality is that Pentecost is part of the Christian story that we all get our meaning from. All of us. Think back to last week, that quote from Eugene Peterson, uh, as we were kind of exploring the gift of God and what it means to be Pentecostal. Let Let me remind you, this is a Presbyterian church leader who's saying it, right? But this is what he says about what it means to be Pentecostal. The lived conviction that everything, absolutely everything in the scriptures is livable, not just true, but livable, not just an idea or a cause, but livable in real life. Everything that is revealed in Jesus and the scriptures, the gospel is there to be lived by ordinary Christians in ordinary times, what Karl Barth called the impossible possibility. It's for all of us. The reality is that flames thing, right? It's not just highlight real stuff. It's not your best moments. It's not just the moments when you feel really holy or you feel really like God's at work in your life or you're really at work for God and flames, right? It's not that. It's everyone. Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit is the impossible possibility of all of our walks with Jesus. It's for all of us. But it's not just for all of us. It is also highlight real. It is the best stuff, the best bits. The theologian Andrew Wilson says this, to the apostles and to Jesus, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit would represent one of the high points of the entire story. The bit that quite literally everyone was waiting for. So it's for everyone. And it's one of the high points of the Christian story. I mean, think about it for a minute. Indwelling, life-giving, empowering, baptizing, spirit. And the fruit of that spirit, prophecy, healing, dreams, visions, on and on and on and on. It's an incredible part of an astonishing story. But the problem is, That we hear the stories and I say things like that. But then we look at our lives and we wonder, how does all this fit, right? Like I look at Pentecost and I'm like, like, where do I put that in my life? As I go to work tomorrow morning, as I get angry and fall out with my kids on the way home today. Like where does that fit? And when we begin to think about that and believe like that, the culture of our faith turns so that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is not only not one of the best bits, we relegate it, right? It's like the sweets that are left at the end of the quality street tin, right? 
Like we don't want to bend them, but we just don't really know what to do with them. So they just sit in this tin until like about nine months later when you get another tin, you just, oh, we'll throw them out then, right? You don't know what to do with it. So what do you do? Well, it started with Pentecost where this outpouring of the Spirit, long promised, okay, 900 years in the waiting, right? It took 900 years for the gift to eventually be poured out, then finally fulfilled. This gift of God came to us to indwell in us so that we might become a new creation and a people of a new order. That's what it's for. But this week, we're looking at the Holy Spirit as the fire of God. And I want to explore three realities of the fire of God for those who are in the way of Jesus. And this is them. They're all helpfully start with P. We're very Presbyterian today. Passion, purity, and presence. Passion, purity, and presence. And the first of those is passion. It's passion. I don't know if you've ever uh, been around someone who has just started a new relationship with someone, right? Like, it has to be near the start, right? The relationship has to be old enough that they've got through the early madness, but not yet old enough whereby they've started to find out that this person isn't actually all they're cracked up to be, right? It has to be in that kind of window, okay? Uh, Anyway, there's this kind of thing where some people just cannot stop talking about them, right? Like, will not Stop, right? Uh, So everything is an opportunity for them to continue to talk about this person, right? So talking about cooking dinner, oh, Gary's the best cook, right? Or, you know, you're watching TV and, you know, you're in the office, you talk about TV. Oh, I remember our first date, you know, and uh, going to the bank. Gary went to the bank today. (laughs) Gary's the best. He goes to the bank, you know. God, give over, right, before I vom all over myself, right? They can't stop talking about them. But there's some part of you eventually when you kind of push past the bit that is like, this is really irritating, right? Eventually gets to see what's really going on. And it's just passion, isn't it? It's just passionate about this person. And it's the same displayed, right? Whenever you get to talking to someone in work, right? They might work next to you. They might do the same job as you. But actually you become aware that they don't really care that much about the job that they're doing. What they really care about is that other topic. That whenever you get them talking about it, they just talk and they talk and they talk. It could be their kids. It could be family life. It could be football. It could be something else that they have that they hold really, really dearly. Passion. Because what has your heart will almost certainly have your time, your energy, and your money, everything. And the question is, okay, when it comes to Jesus, right, how do we talk about Jesus? Because if one of the ways that we display passion and we show passion about just about everything in your life, and I'll guarantee you that you probably already do or you already have, people will know, people who are close to you will know what you're passionate about because you will be talking about it. And they'll know even from the way that you talk about it that you're passionate about it. So the question is, how do you talk about Jesus? Given that I'm still getting my head around life as your pastor or church leader or whatever my title is, okay, Uh, It means that a new dread nearly always takes over my body whenever that question comes, whenever I'm out and about or I'm in a taxi or classically when when you're getting your hair cut. So what do you do, right? Pure dread, right? And I get this choice, okay? I can either like, you know, I I can kind of like faff around with it. I lead a church, right? I can say things like that. Or I can talk about Jesus. I can talk about Jesus. 
think about it too, when you think about talking about Jesus, how naturally it is to talk about him in here and how often how difficult it can be to have conversations about Jesus with the people who are closest to you. Family members, best mates, work colleagues you're close to. So often it's hardest to have the deepest conversations about the stuff that really makes you tick with the people who are close to you. You talk about football, the weather, the news, our kids, our plans, like whatever. But we often don't talk about Jesus. And why would you want to talk about him? Well, because he's got a hold of your heart, right? Because he should have a hold of your heart. The Bible talks numerous times about how the Holy Spirit is a key to our passion, okay? 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. The word quench, right? In Greek, it means to put out, to extinguish, okay? These are Paul's final words to the Thessalonian church, right, at the end of that letter. And he's saying, in other words, keep going. Be all that God has called you to be. Be a people of thanksgiving. And you can't do that if you extinguish the Spirit. Or in Romans 12, Paul writes again, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Zeal. Spiritual passion. Or in Luke 24, and I love that passage in Luke 24. Those two disciples are walking away from Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus. They're broken, they're dejected, they're dislocated at the death of the one, Jesus, that they'd been following. And then the risen Jesus meets them on the road. He talks to them, he opens up, and he explains the full story of what God has been and is doing. And when they eventually, when they eventually realize that it's him they're talking to, what are they left with, okay? Awe? No, that's not what it says. Wonder? No. Blown away by his biblical exposition? No. The answer is this. We're not our hearts burning within us when he talked to, with us on the road and he opened the scriptures to us. What are they left with? Burning hearts. In the evening, or, or sorry, it's like the response of John Wesley. When I read that passage, it always makes me think of Wesley, who, if you know anything about him, he was one of the founders of the Methodist movement. And he wrote, and he kept very detailed diaries. He wrote in his diary for the 24th of May, 1720. At 8.45 p.m., as he heard someone read Luther's preface to the book of Romans, this is what his diary entry said. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I felt my heart strangely warmed. Were not our hearts burning? It's passion, isn't it? It's the Holy Spirit which works in us to make us a people of passion, a passion for his name, a passion for his way. You know, if Pentecost happened to those who had been with Jesus, then burning hearts, passion is the outworking for those who are now in Jesus and he is in them. It's passion. 
Passion that stirs us, passion that works in us and on us, passion which warms us from how we feel a long way off and passion which keeps us going. Because passion can be two things, can't it? Passion can be that thing, you know, that I described, like couples at the start of a relationship, right, where all they want to talk about. Passion can be that thing, right, the thing you're passionate about and work or whatever, and all you talk about is your thing. Or passion can be something else. I used to travel quite a bit to London and would always be walking through the airport. And I remember this period of time when HSBC, uh, other banks are available, had a very, like, had this brilliant advertising campaign that was on. And it was, it was sort of two images, right? So, like, one of them was privilege and it was money. And the other was privilege and it was uh, getting an injection, like a vaccination. And it was these, like, provocative images of different things. And one of them was, one of them was, one of them was love. And the passion, there were kind of two pictures. And the first was something like this. It was like, you know, young couple, all of that sort of stuff, lovey-dovey, all of that. And then the next image with the same caption was this. And why I say that today is that passion is not just the passion that stirs you at the start. It's passion that keeps you going. This image is every bit as much passion, maybe more perhaps, than the image that I showed first. The passion to still belong to someone. The passion to still love them. The passion to still be there for them. The passion to still work on yourself for someone else. Passion. And it is passion that will keep you going. It's passion which keeps you from giving up again and again and again. The New Testament shares that it is our passion that drives us to words like endure and persevere. Maybe you feel like all you've done over the last while is just endure. Last two years, coming out of all of this madness, maybe life has changed, work, personal circumstances, whatever. Maybe you feel like the last couple of years have just been enduring. You've just made it through. You've just got through it all. Maybe you felt the fire, the warmth go out in your heart. It is passion that has got you here. And it is passion that can lead you forward still. First sign of fire in your life is passion. But the second is purity. It's purity. And the second I say purity, purity is one of those words that as soon as we use it in the church or in any context really, people begin to shuffle in their seats, right? They begin to get uncomfortable because we're talking about purity and you think that I'm about to take away your love island, right? I'm not about to take away your love island viewing. You should take it away from yourselves, right? But the reality is in our world, right? Purity is of pretty low, low worth at every level of leadership, isn't it? Like purity is not something much of the world values very highly. Prime ministers, presidents, princes, high profile leaders, whoever, right? Purity is not something that we hear lots, of, lots about on a high value. But yeah, when it comes to our lives as those in the way of Jesus, as those filled with the Holy Spirit, We shouldn't really be surprised, should we? We shouldn't be surprised. After all, he's called the Holy Spirit, right? The word holy is in there, right? So purity shouldn't be surprising. And there's no escaping that it's part of the character of God and part of the character of the Holy Spirit. And and it comes out through the whole of the Bible, not just the New Testament, but through the Old Testament as well. Purity is a big part of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. The writer of the Hebrews writes, our God is a consuming fire. And this purity of the fire of God, it tends towards having two functions, right? Generally speaking, when the Bible talks about it, refining 
and consuming. Refining and consuming. In the Old Testament, okay, the temple had this system, all right, of sacrifice. And a big part of it was the sacrifices offered at the altar. And because this was to God, it was all about purity and cleanliness. And there were strict regulations, like numerous strict regulations, like detail after detail after detail about how these high priests were meant to do it. And even with the fire, right? Even down to the fire that was going to do the purifying and the consuming. This is what it says in Leviticus 6. The fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings on it. The fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. I don't know if you got the general gist of that block. The fire must not go out, guys, right? There were regulations even about the fire, But outside of the fire that they were to maintain for sacrifices on the altar, there was also quite a few instances where God moved in fire. And what did he do when he moved? He purified. This is what it says in Leviticus 9. Moses and Aaron, they went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Fire is about purity. It's both a necessary and a miraculous feature of sacrifice in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Sacrifice, which was all about purity. Things were sacrificed in your place to make right your wrongs. Things were sacrificed and it was all about purity. And then in the New Testament, there's this shift, right? Through uh, which in N.T. Wright's words, we become the temples. It's no longer a physical place. It's, it's us. We're the place where heaven and earth meet. And because of this, our lives become the altar. That's why Paul can speak so clearly in Romans 12 that our lives are to become living sacrifices. We're the temple. And our lives become the altar. And purity is still a big deal. Heaven and earth moves right through us if we're if we're, this, if we're the temple, our lives are the altar, and that's where the sacrifices are to be made. And to do that, we still need fire. But now that's the Holy Spirit's work. It's not a physical fire that needs to be kept burning. It's a spiritual fire that has to burn in us, but we have to keep it burning, don't we? When John the Baptist arrives in the scene in Matthew 3, he speaks about the coming of Jesus and he says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who's more powerful than I, talking about Jesus, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. God wants us to live a life of purity. And the Holy Spirit is the fire that burns up the change. We couldn't even have right relationship with Jesus without the Spirit. That's how much we need Him. And again and again and again, the message in the early church is that through that same fire that we are purified. For example, writing to the Thessalonians, Paul writes, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. It's the Holy Spirit And the Holy Spirit is the way impure and unholy people like us get to be holy and pure, like the one in whom we place our trust. 
the one who is in us, it's the same fire that changes us. The great evangelist and preacher, D.L. Moody, he wrote this. The work of the Spirit is to impart life, to implant hope, to give liberty, to testify of Christ, to guide us into all truth, to teach us all things, to comfort the believer, and to convict the world of sin. Flame emoji. Just listen to this, okay? I'm going to read this, this passage. It's a little bit of a longer block from Galatians 5. I'm going to read the, the message translation. I'm sorry. I know there's some of you have got to deal with the message translation, but um, every so often, I feel like Eugene Peterson just nails it in the way that he communicates a passage. And this is from Galatians 5, okay? And I just think when I was preparing for this during the week, like this is it in a nutshell. This is the work of the Spirit, in terms of passion and in terms of purity. This is what the Spirit does. This is what it says in Galatians 5. It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket goods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants. A brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, I could go on. This isn't the first time I've warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessities is killed off for good, crucified. Since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure that we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. That means we will not compare ourselves with each other as if one of us were better and another worse. We have far more interesting things to do with our lives. Each of us is unoriginal. It's the Holy Spirit's work to develop and kindle passion in our lives. Passion not just at the start, but passion that will endure us to the end. And it's the Holy Spirit's work in our lives to stir us to be a people of purity. That will touch every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our wants and our longings, every aspect of our shame and our disappointments. It is the Holy Spirit's work. It is the same fire that does it. And finally, the fire of God is about presence. The fire of God is about presence. And of all of the biblical images for fire, 
Presence is the standout and repeat message. If you were to do a scan through your Bible today for fire of God, it would be presence, which is the one that comes up more than anything. Time and again, fire meant presence. I've already read a reference from Leviticus, but there are references in Genesis, many in Exodus, Matthew, Luke, John, and on and on and on. From a burning bush to a pillar of fire, to fire which covered the tabernacle to provide guidance and light. Again and again, fire meant God was with them. And we just read from Acts 2, okay, that day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church and on all of us, okay, and what is one of the things that comes along with it? Fire, fire. And the fire we're reading about in Acts 2, what it means is God is with us. This is what it says. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So on that day, there was fire. And it came to each of them as an individual. And it did some things in them as a result of that fire. Dallas Willard says this, God's presence is everywhere around us. God is able to penetrate, intertwine himself within the fibers of the human self in such a way that those who are enveloped in his loving companionship will never be alone. The tongues of fire came that day and the message was God is with us. And that's exactly what Pentecost meant when it comes to fire. The fire separates and eventually it comes to rest in what looks like tongues above each of them. It's obvious what God is saying. He's saying to them that day, once the fire was over them all, leading, speaking, guiding, like that pillar of fire, okay? Now he is in them all. Fire was in their history. Fire was in their present. Fire is in us now. And it's this fire, it's this presence in us that is the sign that we belong to him. Or to put it as Paul wrote in Romans 8, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. It's this fire that's in us now. In each and every one of you who calls Jesus Lord. And more than anyone else, Jesus was the most insistent on his presence being with us and in us. And just how big a deal this was. Speaking about the Holy Spirit as a helper in John 16, right at the end of his time with the disciples in his farewell discourse, he says, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That's right. Jesus, the Son of God, faultless, spotless, sinner, doer of incredible miracles, speaker of astonishing words, he tells the disciples then and us now that it's better if he leaves. Like if that's you and I in that moment, you're like, no deal, Jesus. Like this is not a good deal. You go in and saying things will be better when you go, like no deal. I've seen the things you've done. I can't do those things. It would be far better if you stay. Please will you stay, Jesus. I mean, at that point, you're like, I'm not having that, Right? But you're definitely not having that. You're saying like, no, you got to stay. We need you to stay, Jesus. Look at all the stuff that's happening in the world now that you're here. You can't go. Jesus says, it's better if I go. Because I'm leaving the helper with you. I mean, how can the world, right? The ministry he was calling them to possibly be better without the one who is the model. Like it's doomed. Like if that's you and I and you're looking at the forecasts, you know, in terms of how that's going to go, you're like doomed. 
Definitely not. Now Jesus isn't there. Doomed. And whatever way you come at it, it sounded like a bad deal at the time. But in truth, it was way better. It was way better. You and I are here today because of that reality. It was way better because the helper of the Holy Spirit would mean that God's presence would no longer be just where Jesus was. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit meant that God's presence came to millions of believers all at once. We're here today and God promises his presence, right? And yet when we split and scatter throughout the city tomorrow morning, his presence will still be with you wherever you go. The assurance of his presence here, the assurance of his presence tomorrow, wherever you go, the assurance of his presence wherever you are, whatever things look like, whatever you're doing, that he is with you always. It looked like a bad deal, but actually it was better. In a world of Wi-Fi, nobody wants to go back to dial-up, do they? Most of you are too young to even remember dial-up. That's the depressing thing about that, that weird noise. And all that stuff that happened when you went on dial-up, right? But it was dial-up before. And at the coming of the Holy Spirit, it's Wi-Fi. And you don't ever want to go back. And it's his presence, all that Jesus is and was, all that he did, all that he was capable of. That is what is poured out in all of us. All of the creative, transforming, redeeming power of heaven is poured out into all of us. And that is now what we carry. And it makes all the difference in the world. It's kind of like that thing of living in a family. On the marriage prep course, we talk very often about family of origin and its kind of influence in your life, right? The things you don't realize that being in a family has meant, okay? And the thing about that is, is, is that, you know, when you think about it now as adults, you only spent so many years at home in your house, didn't you, right? Like, I've been out of our family home now for quite a few years. And yet, years later on, as you try to start life with another person, right? You get married, you buy a house, you start to work out what are new rhythms in your life. You realize, right, that there's some stuff that you still haven't left behind and that you probably will never leave behind. And actually, some of the stuff you don't need to leave it behind. The reality that having been in the presence of a mom or a dad or people that raised you, okay, and somehow years down the line, you realize that you still hold on to values that they held on to. You're still passionate about things that your family was passionate about just because you are. Rhythms that they were into, cultures, your way, things that you say. It's why sometimes the greatest compliment for those of us that no longer maybe have a parent with you, the greatest compliment you can be paid is when someone says, you're so like your mom. You're so like your dad. Because you no longer have their presence with you, but somehow something of them lives on in you, doesn't it? You realize that you continue to be stirred by them, even when they're no longer with you. And it shapes us even when they're not here. And that's what happens when we get filled with the Holy Spirit. The ongoing work of a presence in our lives that shapes us and molds us, that helps us be passionate about some things, even though we may not naturally be passionate about some things, that works in us to form the way we are. 
even in the ongoing thing of our lives, the days that pass, even when we pass the big highlight reel experiences and you move into your day and daily, it is the presence of God in an ongoing sense that shapes you and your life. Fire. The Holy Spirit was about gift of God, but secondly, the Holy Spirit was about the fire of God. And that fire was poured out in the Bible in passion, in purity, and in presence.